Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 188 with Justin Locke. Justin takes an irreverent, kind of fun approach when he talks about being stupid and how that's actually to your advantage in surprising ways. So you'll learn one, why you shouldn't be scared of looking stupid. Two, how to use the irregardless effect to your advantage. And three, stupid approaches to finding brilliant solutions. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we reference here, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep188. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to check out some of our useful resources. One I will highlight right now is the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course. This is a selection of bite-sized actionable tidbits from my Enhanced Thinking and Collaboration training programs. So you can get all those in a convenient email delivery format right to your inbox over the course of 10 work days. And it has some of the best tips that have been shown to slash about 1.4 hours of waste out of people's work weeks where they did the full training program. So hopefully you'll get a healthy dose of that with the miniaturized tidbits there. So the 10 days of winning at work over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now, here is Justin's story. Justin Locke spent 18 seasons playing bass in the Boston Pops. He then shifted focus to being an author, playwright, orchestra manager, and media producer. His Pops memoir, Real Men Don't Rehearse, has sold over 12,000 copies, and his musical plays for family audiences are performed all over the world. Justin often appears as a humorous guest speaker, sharing his favorite gig disaster stories, as well as firsthand insights into what conductors great and not so great actually do. His website is over at justinlock.com. And here is Justin now. Justin, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Well, Pete, thanks for having me. I am honored and thrilled to be here. Let's do it. Okay. Well, I'd like to kick us off. I see you are also a fan of the beer Heineken and you have a bit of a history involving thievery. And Heineken's, what's the story? Okay, well, I guess we, if people have read my bio, I played bass in the Boston Pops for many years. We would play concerts down at the Hat Shell, you know, where you see the 4th of July show. And then they would put us on a bus and take us back to Symphony Hall, where all our cars were parked. And uh, Arthur Fiedler had a refrigerator in his dressing room, which door was wide open. Every door is wide open in Symphony Hall. Nothing's locked up. It's amazing. And uh, I've discovered that they kept this thing was stocked full of Heineken beers all the time. And even though we weren't doing anything in the hall, the beers were there. They were cold. And so I would go up, change whatever, get into this or that. And then I just go in there, take a couple of Heineken, stuff them in my pockets so no one can see them and take them home and drink on Arthur's tab. Uh-huh. It's a little, you know, brush with greatness. <laughs> That's fun. It is now Arthur, for listeners who aren't familiar, Arthur is a famed conductor. Anything you want to share? Did you ever get caught? Were there any consequences? I never got caught, and there were no consequences. And thank goodness I never got caught. It's uh, it's really a tr- the trust level at Symphony Hall is so high. I, I'm actually ashamed to admit now that I did something like that because there's millions of dollars worth of instruments just floating around uh, in the basement of Symphony Hall, and and there's just one security guard. I could get in at three o'clock in the morning. 
because he knew my face and I had full run of the building at 24 hours a day. Uh, it was quite amazing. But Arthur Fiedler, I'm going to talk about him because he's really the inspiration for the book. Uh, for your listeners, probably younger people don't know this. Arthur was the most famous successful conductor in history and still is. And conducting is one of the most competitive, hard to get jobs in the world. And here this guy for 50 years is, you know, winning Grammys, you know, selling out halls, 30,000 tickets at a time. And I just couldn't understand that because he had no talent. <laughs> uh, he was this little guy from – he was from South Boston, okay? He wasn't from Croatia or London. He's from down the street. He's a hometown boy. Uh, no real sex appeal. Couldn't compose, couldn't sing, couldn't dance. He had a voice like gravel being shaken in a bag like that. And he was not graceful. He looked like he was chopping pastrami. So I'm kind of going, why, why is that? I mean, this is cognitive dissonance uh, of trying for years, decades really, to understand why Arthur was the most famous successful conductor in the world. And that's what led to the writing of this book, was an attempt to explain that. Okay, well, so intriguing tea up there. So let's dig in. Tell us. So the book is called The Principles of Applied Stupidity. Yep. And... So what do you exactly do you mean by that term and what's sort of like the basic main idea there? Well, you know, it's I guess I prepped too much for the for this thing, but I'll I'll say say what is on my mind here. You and I and pro, and, and at least 80% of the American population, possibly more, uh from age 5 to 16, uh got up in the morning and went to school. Usually a public school, correct? In that age group, yeah, that happens. Yeah, I mean that I mean it's uh -huh. it's the law. You are required. you don't have an option. You you have to go. And in that culture to which the vast majority of us are repeatedly exposed in our formative years, um, there's, there's some paradigms in there that are very strictly observed. And one is it's good to be smart. It's very good to be smart. And it's very bad to be stupid. Uh, you're with me so far. Does that make sense? Makes sense. I'd rather be smart. Oh, of course. I would rather be smart too. So, so would you. And uh, you actually develop an aversion to looking stupid. If the teacher mm. calls on you and you don't know the answer, uh, tons of humiliation and invective are heaped upon you. Uh, if you don't get an A, if you make a mistake, if you can't solve the problem, these are all sins in that culture. And I use that word very specifically. It's, it's, a, it's almost the, the power of sin. It's, it's, a, it's an evil thing. Uh, causes great embarrassment to, to, to make a mistake. So I was looking at a guy who who didn't follow any of these rules. He he was he, he didn't wasn't solving problems. He wasn't very smart. He wasn't very talented, and yet he was very successful. This completely contradicted everything that I was taught in school. Mm -hmm. And then I also saw you know I was in this business for eighteen years, played three thousand some concerts, and I played with hundreds of conductors. And what was also interesting was how many conductors would walk in with sex appeal, with talent, with an Armani suit, with a rich wife, with a great tailor, and just died. I mean, just just couldn't <laughs> get getting started. They failed miserably. And that's what more cognitive dissonance. Why is this happening? And maybe to orient us a little bit, what does it look like when a conductor fails versus crushes it? Well, I mean, the audience at the end either jumps to their feet, screaming, applauding, got to have more of this, and the, the audience builds, or the orchestra just decides, 
we don't like you. <laughs> we don't want you to succeed. Therefore, we are going to ruin this concert. <laughs> okay. I, I did that myself on several occasions. I, I, there's one in my other book, Real Men Don't Rehearse. I absolutely destroyed a concert once. I just slowed the tempo down so far that it practically ground to a halt. And this conductor was clueless, didn't know what was happening to him. But uh, justice was served. You know, well, I, we're getting to it off the track. But anyway, the whole concept of smart and stupid, I became very fascinated with this because I found myself on a daily basis always wanting to be smart. And I was very eager for people to think of me as being smart. And I was terrified of people thinking that I was stupid. I really had this problem with it to the point where I had lost control of my own life. Because if someone was offering smart banking, oh, I got to buy it. <laughs> uh, got to have a smart car, oh, I got to buy it. You know, a smart bomb, uh oh. <laughs> you know, we hear this word smart a lot. It's used often. And to me, it, it, it became uh, manipulative. I mean, why, is, why am I so terribly eager to be smart? And what would happen if I just reversed that? You know, what if I, I mean, there's, uh, you know, Dilbert is, I assume. Right, right. Do you know the Dilbert principle? Oh, geez, I read that book years ago. Well, uh, for, for your readers and yourself, <laughs> the Dilbert Principle states, the stupidest people in a company are promoted to management because that's where they can do the least amount of damage. All right. And I always thought that was cute. But I said, well, what if you wanted to be a manager? Could you reverse that and say, by being stupid, will I get promoted if I can emulate stupidity? Does does this – and. Uh, well, now I'll tell the story. Uh, Henry Mancini, for those of you who don't, he wrote Moon River, um, Days of Wine and Roses, uh, Crazy World, Victor Victoria. This was – I worked with this guy uh, back back in the day and one of the best conductors ever, uh, certainly one of the best lyrical composers ever. And we he came to guest conduct at Pops and we were playing all of his pieces like I just mentioned, Baby Elephant Walk, Peter Gunn. This is back in – he was a big stuff in the 60s obviously. And he got to Pink Panther. I assume everyone knows who Pink Panther is. And, mm -hmm. you know, the theme, da-da-da-dum, da-dum, 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 da-dum. Okay, so he looks at us, and it's up in the folder. We're all ready to play it in the rehearsal, as is normal. And we had never played this arrangement before. And he looks at us. He says, you all know this, don't you? And we all sort of, well, everybody knows Pink Panther, right? So we just said, yeah, we know Pink Panther. He said, great. He turns it over, and we don't go through it. Hmm. Now... You know, well, there's 2,000 people going to come filing in that night, expect, paying 65 bucks a piece, and they want to hear this done right. And we have never played that arrangement before, so it's an unknown. And you can't stop the conductor in rehearsal and tell him he has to do it. It's protocol is very severe, and we were all just absolutely terrified because we hadn't played through it and we didn't know what was coming. So we got to the concert that night. And I, at the risk of you know getting to hyperbole, I've played a lot of concerts, a lot of big TV shows. Never in my entire performing career have I seen an orchestra twisted, screwed up so tight that they, with with eagerness to do everything absolutely precisely, they were ready to eat their own livers, myself included. Just absolutely obsessed with this piece and, and making sure we don't screw it up because we hadn't rehearsed it. We were scared. So the piece comes up, he, he gives a downbeat, we start to play it, and you know, it's not Mahler, it's Pink Panther. And this performance was astonishing. The audience immediately felt this intensity that was just, you know, like, like fog on the stage. And we get to the end and they all leap to their feet. I mean, it was really an extraordinary musical experience. 
And for years, I thought, isn't that amazing that he forgot and he did it wrong and he didn't follow proper procedure and he didn't prepare and he got this fantastic, beautiful result. But now I'm starting to think that he did it on purpose because if we had rehearsed it, then we would be confident, we wouldn't be worried, and we wouldn't care. We would just play it and phone it in, and that was the end of it. And that was – I saw many conductors do this. Uh, John Williams never tells you how to play anything. I mean there's this mythology of conductors being the great master leader, and they're telling everybody how to play everything. And you know we're all watching that little white stick. We're not looking at him. We're reading the music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And John Williams, which even when he talked, they couldn't hear him because there's this hiss in Symphony Hall. But then he would say, let's get started. And you didn't – he would just delegate. He just delegated. He'd never bossed. And here he's, he is now the greatest conductor in history. Uh, and and got Cognitive dissonance. Why is this the case? So I started to think about this, that maybe what I was taught in school isn't wrong. What if I wrote a book that took at the exact opposite extreme and uh, it was actually meant to be a joke? Mm-hmm. But by the third chapter, I said, wait a minute, this works. This is all consistent. This is – and what I – well, what I like about it, I like things that are uh, not so much actionable as that they're consistent. They work every time. I mean there's lots of advice you can get that if you follow it, well, maybe if you work harder or really you know, crank up your desire like they say and think and grow rich, that might work. But these techniques work 97% of the time. And that's the kind of thing I go for. And it's, it's, it is a management book and it's about human nature and how people are. All right. And so that's interesting, that example with not rehearsing and having everybody so wound up that they put all of their intensity into doing well. And I've actually seen something comparable. I don't know if I made this up, but I called it second time syndrome, which is like the first time you do something, you're really focused on making sure, oh, I've never done this before. I want to really make sure I nail it. I'm going to talk to everybody, you know, read all the instructions, directions, you know, watch the timeline, do everything, everything, everything I can to make sure I don't screw this up because I've never done it before. I'm kind of nervous about it. And then the second time it's sort of like, oh, last time this was totally fine. And so you're just sort of chill out and not stressing it, not worrying it, just doing it. And then it ends up being worse than the first oh, yeah. time around because you were so lax about it. And so I've seen that a couple of times in working with folks. Oh yeah. I mean, that's something that happens in concerts. You play the, once you play the first night, you know, you're, you're a little unsure, but once you've got it under your belt, it's like, Oh, that's easy. And the second night stinks because everyone is now relaxed and not paying attention. Uh, and the question is, how do you induce that? in yourself or in others, like what you just talked about, that intensity. When you talk about being awesome at your job, you were awesome at it on the first try. You weren't so awesome the second time. (laughs) So how do you get that every time? And I will give you another example. I'll name names. Seiji Ozawa, big, famous conductor. Oh, okay. Well, he was the music director of the Boston Symphony for 25 years, and I got to play for this guy on numerous occasions. I want to tell you, I've never been so panicked in my life before or since as when this guy's on the podium. And again, you think he's going to instruct you and you're going to follow him, but he's doing stuff that's virtually nonsensical. And you become totally panicked because you feel lost all the time when this guy's conducting. 
I mean, he's gyrating up there wildly. You know, it's, it's like it's like a panther having an epileptic fit. It's going wild. The mm. hair and the beads and oh, it's amazing. But you, well, where's the one? Do you see one? Well, it's too late now. Where's the two? Uh, I, I couldn't see it. Did you? And you become so panicked. Well, now you've got to listen to your partner, stand partner, because that's the only reference point that you can depend upon. And that's what orchestra playing is really about, is what we call ensemble, uh, the blending, or you will, it's another term we use, of listening and blending rhythmically with 90 other people. It's like a flock of birds all turning at the same time. And if a conductor becomes too dominant and saying, follow me, watch me, you lose all of that internal blending energy. And by removing it, by not giving you any information, he forced us to always bring our best game to it. And again, cognitive dissonance makes no sense because everything should fit and be right the first time. But, uh, you know, it, 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 I, in my experience, uh, it, it didn't. I, there's a, another story, if I may. All right. I went into being a video producer I, and I was just putzing around with cable access stuff. You know, they would let you come in and play with it. And a friend of mine hired me to make a fundraising video for a big hospital here in New England. And I didn't know that I didn't know how to produce a video. That's how ignorant I was. I just thought, oh, you just show up. You know, it's what the hell. And they got John Chancellor, who was then the co-anchor of NBC Nightly News. I thought he was going to send me a tape to narrate it. They didn't tell me he was going to be there in person. This is like having Tom Brokaw today Mm -hmm. on your first job, first time. (laughs) Directing anything. Here you go. And it's amazing how you bumble into things when you don't know that you don't know how to do it. Right. Uh, because the people who do know it's hard are afraid. And they hesitate that one moment when the door opens and they don't walk through it. Um, so I went and did this video and the, I hired a professional crew and the, direct, the, photo, the director of photography said, uh, Justin, where would you like us to put the key light? And I said, what's a key light? Mm -hmm. (laughs) This guy just smiled, took the schedule out of my hand and never spoke to me again the next two days. He just ran the shoot (laughs) and I would just, you know, I would stand there. And, you know, the thing was, John Chancellor went back to New York, said, I met this new director, Justin Locke. It was amazing. He hardly said anything. And the crew just flew. (laughs) (laughs) And on top of it, the tape, when I edited it, it wasn't that good. It really wasn't very good. But when all these millionaires on Nantucket saw it, they all said, geez, if this is the best tape the hospital can produce, they must really need the money. And out came the checks books. They raised six million bucks in like three months. And I got hired to make all the videos for this company. (laughs) Well, that's wild. So then I don't know, what is the takeaway from that? I mean, on the one hand, it makes sense that you don't know, you don't know, you know, liberates things and the creative energies of everyone to be ensemble and to be blended and for you to not be in the way. But on the other hand, there was a suboptimal product, but they liked the suboptimal product in terms of it being effective. So it feels like chaos and randomness. Well, to a certain extent, but there never is chaos. It's always There is always an element is that, uh, well... I think if I get back to the, the, the whole paradigm of going to school is that the idea of being afraid of failing. And you've seen people with stage fright. They're terribly, uh, terrified of being embarrassed, of making a mistake. They're ter- scared to death of trying to do something because they're so obsessed with not failing and, and they're uh, such an aversion to it. 
that they freeze. I mean, does, do you agree with that? You've observed oh, that yourself? happens, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's my contention that this is not natural. I think going through that process of being constantly graded and tested and corrected and embarrassed in front of your peer group for not having done your homework or making a mistake on a test, uh, the pressure it it it, it creates a uh, a cumulative effect of trauma, of psychological, emotional trauma that for some people becomes overwhelming and they can no longer do what uh, learn in a normal way, which is trial and a- error, trial and failure is really what it is. And a big part of what my book is, is addressing not the, the theory so much as the emotional guts of your, the, the, the trauma that you've been through that's made you afraid of failing. Yeah. Uh, because if I'd been afraid of failing, I, I, I never would have gotten into the pops. If I'd known how hard it was to do, I never would have attempted it. Uh, it's only after I got there, I said, man, this was hard to get here. (laughs) It's kind of like climbing a ladder. You know, all you do is look at the next rung, but if you know the ladder goes up 500 rungs, you may not even start, Mm -hmm. but you can do it, you know, just one rung at a time. But man, when you think of it, so that's kind of the, uh, and it's, it's about human nature. We all want those strokes of uh, people saying we're smart, but the word smart doesn't mean what we think it means at all. I mean, we tend to think this is superior brain power, uh, but it's, that's not what it means. The word smart really means it's, it's something you like. It's up there with excellence and great. These are words that are very subjective. And, uh, you know, this guy did, you know, this guy uh, took care of me. He's really smart. Uh, no, he's not smart. You just like him. Uh, this, you know, I could say here, this is a great podcast. That's true. And, and you're, a, you're a great interviewer. That's true. You know, but it's excellent. <laughs> it's excellent. It's absolutely fantastic. What does that mean? That means I like it. <laughs> you know, that's all it means. Mm-hmm. And the word stupid, you know, well, this stupid person got in my way today. It could have been Einstein cutting me off in traffic. I'd still call him a stupid idiot because I disapprove of what you are doing. It upsets me and bothers me. And these are these are invectives. I mean, these these are the new swear words. The new profanity is to call someone stupid. Mm-hmm. But if you call someone stupid, well, them's fighting words. And uh, we we because we have this cumulative trauma of having our intellects insulted that we somehow can't do things. And this, when we get in now, this is where I worry because for your audience and you and and because uh, this is these are the dark arts. You know, the book is the dark arts. This is about uh, manipulating people. It's about conniving, you know, to get – it's a very Machiavellian approach of the, the, the end justifies the means. Um, if I want people to uh, act in a certain way, you know, that I'm thinking, well, how do, how do I get that? If I pretend that I don't know the answer, this will jump up. And if I make people feel smart, uh, smarter than me – they're, they're going to like me more. And if, I'm, if I put myself up as I'm the great you know, genius Justin Locke, you'd think that would make everybody love me. But it, I found it does not. Certainly, yes. Well, and I don't know, think there's anything Machiavellian or dishonest or dark about that. If you honestly acknowledge, hey, you know, this is your area of strength. It's not mine. We're counting on you. Thank you. And then you just sort of just humbly lay that out there for what it is. I think that... You might very well have a great result, but I don't, it doesn't seem, you know, dark or dishonest in any way to me. 
Well, sometimes, yeah, the way you put it, it sounds great. See, this is my problem. I knew you, you're, you're a nice, ethical, moral person. <laughs> you, would, you would only use it in these manners. Uh, but if we want to get it, did you want to talk about the irregardless effect? Well, I mean, it has such an intriguing title. I got to know what it means. Yes. Okay. Well, it takes us to this. Uh, well, I wrote this play once and I used the word irregardless in the show. And, every t- and I, I was trying to explain, to portray a character who wasn't very smart well, my own word, uh, that he used language very poorly. And he used a lot of words that weren't words. Mm-hmm. And irregardless was just one of them. Metaphoricalness was one of them. Uh, and it was just this gibberish English that came out of this person. And people came up to me after the show and said, Justin, irregardless is not a word. I, I mean, like I had my fly open. You know, mm-hmm. it was that kind of, you know, Justin, you're doing something horribly shameful. You got to fix that. And I'm like, don't, it's a joke. Don't you get, it happens so many times. I mean, it happened like 15 times. And at that point I said, there's something to this. And the point being that there are some people who have been shamed because they use the word irregardless and they got pointed at and laughed at and shamed and told they were stupid in front of their peer group when they were eight years old. And they never forgot it. And so now it's, it's, it's a point that they just can't get around. And uh, if you do something like that, if you make a huge mistake, uh, people will be fascinated by mistakes. Uh, If you – Toys R Us is a perfect example of branding. That's a misspelled. It's bad grammar and it's misspelled. But it's memorable. Right. So if you are thinking of you know building a brand, I always tell people use a misspelled word. People notice misspellings much faster than correct spellings, and it's more memorable for for whatever reason. So that's a very good example of use, doing something incorrect for you know a good space. But the, one of the darker uh, applications, we'll dig back in history. This was when Sandra Day O'Connor was a Supreme Court justice, female, and when she retired. There was a fair amount of presumption that George W. Bush would have to appoint another female justice to the Supreme Court. So then, he, well, okay, well, you got there's all this political pressure and presumption that we're going to get another female on the Supreme Court. So there was a woman on his staff, and I'm sure she's very nice. Her name was Harriet Myers. She had gone to law school, but I'm not sure if he ever she ever passed the bar exam. Probably did, but she never appeared in court as a lawyer. She was just kind of a you know one of those lawyers who does contracts and stuff. She was not a litigator and never had been appointed to a bench. She was not a judge and had virtually no experience as as a judge. And George Bush nominates this woman to the Supreme Court of the United States. There's this huge uproar when this announcement is made because there are, how could you possibly – nominate this 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 totally unqualified person. Oh my goodness, it's terrible. And George Bush had to come out publicly and say, well, I'm going to have to retract my nomination. So I'm going to nominate John Roberts instead, <laughs> who, you know, is now the chief justice. Now, you can say, was George Bush really, really stupid that he didn't know that people had to have? Because I want to think I'm smart. This is one of the basic principles. I like to feel smart. And when people really do really dumb things, I like it because I get a dopamine rush of feeling superior to that dumb person. And that's an opening for me to be manipulated. This is maybe the appeal behind keeping up with the Kardashians. And the rally TV programs. You know, I don't watch the show, but are they are they really obnoxious people that you can look down well, on? I don't watch it much myself, but I mean, with these reality TV shows are often, I think, 
why do you watch that? It's just people just seem to be making dumb decisions. And you're saying that's exactly why they watch it. <laughs> the dopamine hit for feeling there superior. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it makes no sense in the context of going to school and smart is good. We should all have brilliant people all day long. And, but we don't want to see that. We don't want to listen to eggheads talking about you know, integers. We, we want to see somebody duck dynasty and people who can't tie their own shoes. It makes you feel superior. It makes you feel good. And that's a principle of applied stupidity. You, you got ratings. You know, and, and it's just the truism of human nature that that's the case. So, you know, as I, again, so that's the, 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 the irregardless effect. I, a personal story. This is how you can use this not in a management situation. Uh, I had an editor when I was making all these hospital videos. And I would hire him. I'd just hand him the tapes that I shot and make the show. And he would just go into his little room and he would edit up the show. And he did wonderful work, uh, but then he would call me, oh, okay, I got, got a draft for you to see, and I'd come over, and in the, like, in the second minute, here's the president of the hospital with his name spelled wrong. He, and I, I would freak out, you know, oh my gosh, you misspelled the name of the president, oh my God, you, you got to fix that. And, and, and then he would say, well, d- did you want me to change anything else? <laughs> and I said, <laughs> well, remember the irregardless effect. It's like a bright flashlight in a dark room. You can't see anything. That's the only mistake I could see because it was so big mm-hmm. and so glaring and so horrible. And I said, you got to fix that, you know, because any other mistake was, was nothing in comparison. But you see, he did it on purpose because he didn't want me to start picking, well, could you make that dissolve 30 frames instead of 20? Because I'm in a position to boss him around and, and you know, pick. And people in middle management positions are always looking for some way to, we used to call it rubbing their smell on the project. <laughs> you know, you want to uh, feel like you've, you've helped. And I felt like I saved the day. Mm-hmm. And I've, every time he did this, I felt, oh my God, it's so, I, I did my job. I was, I really, this could have been a disaster. I have heard a disaster. I have earned my money. But he had already made the tape with the correct spelling. <laughs> he, he, he didn't have to do it over. It was just there to stop me from meddling with his creation. And he did this for, to me for years. And so finally I realized every time it was the same damn mistake. Mm-hmm. I said, he's, he's doing this on purpose. And he, but I fell for it every time because it made me feel superior and smarter that I knew the answer and he didn't. And it saved him all kinds of trouble. So that's another principle of applied stupidity, which I think is a pretty good takeaway. You know, I, if, it, it, there's other ways you can do it. I mean if you want someone to proofread something – uh, put the word irregardless in there. And if they say everything's fine, you know they didn't really read it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just who would intentionally put a mistake into a draft, you ask? I would to see if you're paying attention. So it's just uh, – it's this dynamic of human beings and ego and trauma, fear of embarrassment that some people have in extreme degrees. They can't even move. Uh, and to, for me, understanding – and managing fear of failure has made it possible for me to do far more with my life than if I had been sitting there pondering whether I can really afford the the fear the the feeling of embarrassment that I'm inviting by going to a dance class uh, for the first time, um, which was very hard for me to do, and now it's my whole life is going out swing dancing. So, but I see this in people all the time. They're scared to death to just risk any emotional vulnerability in public at all. And I'll tell you, this limits your life. Absolutely. It really does. It really does. So, 
you know, that, that's kind of, you know, the book is, is just all these stories that, that support this idea of, of challenging this miasma of smart and stupid angels and devils and just say, wait a minute, do I really need to be smart? Well, yes. As you imagine, all of these principles of applied stupidity and how they play out, I think we did a nice job of setting the conceptual framework. So what would you recommend as being sort of the immediate things that you do if you're a professional at work trying to harness this for a good measure? What would be like the top three implementations or things you do right away having been enlightened with these principles? Well, one is to understand that people, one is never solve a problem. Because people love to solve problems. Their brains are wired to solve problems. And you don't have to solve a problem. All you have to do is set the problem. And this is what great conductors did. They never told us how to play it. They just put the music in front of us and said, there's the problem. You solve it. And it's a big ego rush to solve the problem. So you can use that need as you delegate, let other people solve the problem. Uh, Internally, I always say embrace your inner idiot. The whole idea of uh, being the perfect scores, uh, th- this is unnatural, you know, that, that kind of idea. And, th- and the third thing that I always say to people, because I'll ask people in, uh, the, in Whole Foods or whatever, is that, do you know when you're going to have more chocolate chip cookies? And they will never say, I don't know, because they don't know. Uh, but they won't say that. They'll, they'll say, well, let me check. Let me confer. Let me find out. Mm. It's a huge time waster for me. I don't want you to go and solve this problem while I stand here for 20 minutes. I just want you to know if you know. And it's the, the idea of just saying to people, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, if you say to somebody, I don't know how to do that. I have no experience in that. The next time they ask you something, can, do you know how to do that? And you say, yes, I do know how to do that. The fact that you told them I don't know how to do something has, has created credit and, and believability because now we know, okay, you're honest. You'll tell us if you can't do it. And if you say you can do it, that means you can do it because why would you lie when you didn't before? Mm-hmm. But again, if you feel constantly like you have to present this perfect, perfect valedictorian self to the world, uh, this it really doesn't work. I mean, people, as a speaker, you know, when I get up and talk, I, I have to really fight my school training to get up in front of the class and recite my book report and show them how smart I am, which is what I was trained in school to do. And I was constantly, you know, encouraged to do that. Uh, as a speaker, I completely defer to the audience. I recognize their intelligence. This is what is rare in our culture right now is someone recognizing your ability and what you can do as opposed to seeking that recognition for yourself. And that's what a true artist and performer does. Mm, perfect. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I'll quote Peter Drucker, uh, which is, uh, who is your customer and what do they find to be a value? Right on. And how about a favorite book? A favorite book? Well, uh, this is one that not many people talk about. It's called uh, Secrets of Consulting by Gerald Weinberg. Are you familiar with this book? Uh, tell me more. Gerald Weinberg is a high-tech consultant, and he wrote this book on being a consultant. And it's just full – the fir- I mean he really kind of the first 
20 pages is like really the meat of the book, but then it gets into these longer things that are, well, I won't say filler, but they're not as interesting. The first 18 pages or so, he's just telling you, well, I like principles, as I said. I like things that work all the time. And he says things that in corporate America, giving people advice, working on teams, they work all the time. He says, this is just a truism of human nature. Well, you had the guy, uh, Cialdini's uh, Influence. That book, it's kind of like, you know that book, right? That's fantastic, yes. Yeah, well, it's kind of like that. I mean, it's not quite research. It's more experience-based than research-based. But I think uh, he has phrases like, uh, the further you spread the jam, the thinner it gets. And then he just explains one of the famous phrases. He says, there's always a trade-off. And this applies to whatever you do. I mean, you can pass this law to stop carbon going in the air, but this is going to happen over here. There's always a trade-off. There's never anything even. And it's just full of uh, witty little nuggets like that that uh, I just adore and I, I recommend it to anybody. All right. Thank you. And how about a favorite tool? A favorite tool? Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, the DeWalt uh, variable speed, 20 volt cordless drill. <laughs> That's very precise. I've used that before. <laughs> I just bought one last month and I want to tell you, it's like the Millennium Falcon in my hand. I just, oh God, does it work? Sorry, you asked for a tool. So that's what immediately no, came to mind. <laughs> that works great. Thank you. And how about a favorite habit? Favorite habit? Oh, I have so many bad ones. <laughs> I don't, oh, let's see, a favorite habit. Uh, just ne- never take things at face value. Always kind of go, hmm, you know, why is that? You know, if, 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 if this, you know, some, someone, I'll go into stores, you know, and it'll, and it'll, it'll say fresh mackerel or fre- fre- fresh tuna. You know, they'll say it's fresh tuna. And I'll just say, well, that's good. I hate that stale tuna. Mm-hmm. You know, why are you telling me it's fresh? Who would? It's a useless adjective, just meant to to get you to buy it. You know, I just kind of flip. You know, why do you call it a refrigerator? It's just a refrigerator. Mm. I like to pick at things like that. It started cold. Yeah, and it just maintains its coldness. That's right. right. So it's a refrigerator. <laughs> you know, unless you, I mean, unless you take it out for a while. But why would you do that? It's a refrigerator. <laughs> So why do I have that? How much time human hours have been eaten up saying that extra R-E before that word? Over time, it adds up. So, I, 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 well, that's, I'm picky about those things. That's a habit of mine. But I don't know if it's good or bad. But it forces you to not just take things at face value because there's always somebody trying to sell you something, you know, by twisting the words, you know, propaganda. George Carlin is a great uh, observer of that. You know, and talking about how they changed uh, shell shock to PTSD, and uh, how we soften the language in order to keep make you less aware, or conscious of what's going on. So that's mm. a habit that I that I encourage people to just be con- You know, before you just go in there, think about why am I doing this? It's the Toyota Lean Five Whys. You know, why are we doing that? Why are you asking me to do that? Well, in that case, why that? You know, it's the Five Whys of Toyota Lean, which is another topic for another discussion. Obviously, good. Thank you. Uh, how's that? That's good. That's good. Yeah. And how about a favorite nugget, a piece that you share that tends to really resonate with folks, gets them nodding their heads, taking notes, etc. I say the, you know, when the going gets tough, lower your standards. Yeah, I like it. You know, as opposed, yeah, I mean, I always say, well, now you should toughen up. No, that's a shaming thing. You know, going got tough. Well, you, it's your fault. Your problem. Get, get tough. Get going. No, just just you know, light, lower your standards. Maybe make it easier. You don't have to always assume that this outside entity is correct. 
you know, maybe you need to reframe is a wonderful phrase, I guess. You know, when mm-hmm. you're in a situation, it's not working, reframe it. Am I a victim here or am I in control of the situation? Mm-hmm. You can reframe pretty fast if you just decide to do it and understanding you have the power to do it and the choice to do it. And many people don't realize they have that choice. So again, it's a consciousness thing, but it works for me. All right. Thank you. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch with you, where'd you point them? Uh, my website is a key, justinlock.com. It's lock with L-O-C-K-E, justinlock.com. And my books are Real Men Don't Rehearse. That's the, the funny pop stories. Obviously, Principles of Applied Stupidity. Buy the Kindle version, uh, the, the paperback back. There's a glitch in the system that I haven't fixed. It's too expensive. Uh, but it's only nine ninety nine on Kindle. And uh, then the other two books are there. But uh, yeah, justinlock.com is really the place to go. And then that's fans out to everything else. I'm on Twitter and Facebook and all the rest of it. All right. And do you have a parting challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Well, define awesome at a job. I mean, it, it's, uh, I, uh, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. Is No, I don't have any ideas. <laughs> You're on your own. Oh, I think that's a nice, it's a nice finale when it comes to admitting your, you don't have the answer at times. And here we are all respecting you more as a result. Yeah, and I, I didn't have to work very hard. I impressed the hell out of everybody. I got the job. <laughs> oh. You know, I didn't do anything. Quit <laughs> QED. <laughs> all right. Well, Justin, thanks so much. This has been fun. And I wish you lots of luck with books and performance and fun and art. And, you know, just keep on rocking. Well, Pete, keep up the good work. I, I have to, you have so much stuff online, I couldn't get through all of it. And I was watching all your videos and everything. So you're really quite the career going there. Congratulations. I got a real kick out of Justin's perspective. If I had known how hard it was to do, I never would have attempted it. And I've heard that from a number of entrepreneurs. And I think it also applies to any number of tricky business challenges that can show up in your career. So again, if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcripts or the links to items that we've referenced here, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep188. And if you haven't already, I do hope you'll push subscribe. You'll hear from folks like our next guest. He's a big deal. He's a senior vice president at Ronstad, which is the largest people headhunter type organization in the world. And he's given some straight perspective on what the hiring landscape looks like, what it's like to work with a recruiter, how to do that effectively. So a whole lot of good stuff. I hope to catch you there in peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 